are so thrilled to be here this morning, and we're going to continue our conversation in 1 Corinthians, uh, thinking about the church as the foolishness of God to change the world. The Church United is the greatest force for good in any neighborhood, in any city, in any country in the world. The church, which is God's idea, is the greatest force for good. And it just happens that I'm delighted to say we're being uh, visited by a friend of ours who's also a pastor of a church literally down the street. So I'm going to invite Justin Peterson, who is dying for me not to do this, to come on up and uh, welcome Justin as he comes. (laughs) Hey, buddy. So uh, I know. I'm that guy. Great to see you. Uh, Justin and I have been friends for years, and I just wanted to let you know that uh, if for whatever reason 26 West is not the place that God is leading you to come and worship, you should join Table Community Church, which literally meets down the street. How's that for an antithesis to growing your church? Um, I really, Justin, welcome. So thrilled that you're here. Yeah, thank you. And uh, uh, you stood on the stage, you and Katie, like, how many years ago is it now since you planted Taylor? Yeah, we planted eight years ago. You brought us on the stage, prayed over us, and said that exact same thing and sent some really wonderful people. Round two. To plant. If uh, (laughs) if you're the best of the best at 26 West, uh, you're invited to pray about being a part of what God's doing at a church just down the road because this is who we are. We're Jesus's people. Well, uh, eight years ago. So give us a little, little virus happened, shook the world up. You were probably a part of that too. Yeah. 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 So in, in the post uh, COVID world for you, this is just a couple of questions. One, what are some just signs of hope that you see at table? Like hmm. what's God doing? Anything specific that we can just rejoice? Yeah. In? Yeah, totally. Before I get there, I just have to say, yeah. I tried to sneak in here today. I know. And not do I know, this. I know, and I know. I even met some people. I was sitting, I'm sitting in front of some people and I tried to play it cool like I was a first time guest who oh, knew God, nothing I about Jesus. I just, yeah, and now I'm standing up here. That was not the plan. Um, yeah. I'm sorry for deceiving the you people. You shouldn't that I be to. deceiving people in church. <laughs> not, God will call you out. Not the plan. Um, <laughs> hush, uh, yeah, obviously the last few years have been gnarly on yeah. the church, but. In so many ways, it was such a beautiful season for us. Like yeah. I saw so much, saw God doing so much in our midst. Um, perhaps the biggest thing that has happened in our church over the last year is there was another church in our area uh, that was 150 years old. It was called Tualatin Valley Community Church, a pastor named Jeremiah Duncan. Yeah. Uh, and they, COVID had been really difficult for them. And uh, on the other side, they decided as a church that they were going to shut the doors after 150 years of ministry in our area. Wow. And they joined what we were doing, and part of them joining us was gifting us with five acres of land uh, right, uh, right behind the Walmart on yeah. Cadillos Pass. Yeah, yeah. And so, which was an answer, as you can imagine, an answer to prayer. We have, yeah, yeah, we yeah. rejoice. Um, we've been meeting in a warehouse space that we just rent, and our lease runs out in February of 25. And so we have to figure out what's next. We don't have an option to renew. And so that land was an answer to prayer. Now the question is, can we get something built on that land quick right. enough? Probably not, but the Lord knows what's... Ahead. Yeah, yeah. Other than obviously like this gift with an opportunity that we can pray about, anything else that we can pray for in terms of you guys personally or, or in the church that we can just... We're, we're brothers, sisters, we're like, we're family. Anything else that we can pray into? 
Yeah, um, I would just cover your prayers for my wife and uh, the season that we're in um, after 10 years of being at home as a stay-at-home mom and raising littles. Uh, we made the decision this year to send them back to school. And okay. with that decision, my wife went back to work. And uh, I know there are a lot of working moms in the room, uh, likely, but that was a big shift for our family. I mean, a decade of her being at home. And so we're still trying to get used to what that means and get used to what it means to have our daughters in school. Yeah. Yeah. You're not alone in that. Well, let's, uh, let's extend a hand if we would by extending a hand. We'd be saying like, man, if I were on stage, I would be praying and laying hands on Justin, our brother. And let's just, let's seek God for the good of table and for the Peterson family. Lord, we thank you that we're united because of you, King Jesus. We belong to you and you're the head of your church and we're the many parts of the body. And this is a beautiful thing and you've done this for us. So we just lift up Table Community Church. We rejoice in the extension of witness. 150 years now in a new season with a new name, but the same king and the same message and the same scriptures and the same hope. So we rejoice, Lord, in this newfound opportunity uh, to participate and sharing good news to Hillsboro. And Lord, I do pray for the Petersons. I know what it's like to lead and I know the stresses and strains, but we pray anointing and blessing and goodness over their home as their girls are out in school and Katie's out working uh, again after a decade of, of investing in these young ones. Now we just pray your kingdom come, your will be done in their world as it is in heaven. And we are grateful, Lord, to be counted part of the family of God. So we love you and we pray the best, God, that you have over their world and over their family in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Thank you, buddy. Love you. And I'm uh, glad to embarrass you at any point and every time. Thanks, buddy. Well, um, I'm, I'm getting to do that because it actually leans in. Justin did text me that he was coming. It was the biggest mistake that he had made. Uh, he should have just slipped in, but it's just good. We're, we're in a conversation with a letter from the apostle, one of Jesus' sent ones, to a church community. And what we've probably seen, if you've been with us so far in these first few weeks, is the first four chapters, four to 16, the first four are dealing with one basic and important topic, and it's the unity of God's people called the church. I think it's interesting and it's telling and it's important to remember that the first thing that that God's leader needs to do with God's people is to remind them of who they are and the importance of being together. Uh, Side note, but I meant to say it and I totally spaced as they're building out their building, we'll let you know what God is doing. And some of you are called to donate towards that. I'm just saying that. I don't know who it is. I don't know when. But when the Lord opens the door for them to expand that house of worship, um, we're going to let you know what, what you can do to be a part of that. Isn't that cool? We're a part of the big thing that Jesus is doing. Yeah. And, and if we don't tell you personally, we'll just take some of your giving and by faith give it, uh, give it to them because that's what Jesus' people do. But like I said, uh, we're, we're in this conversation about the church being united. Why? Because the church together is the greatest source for good in any city, anywhere. It's why we're entitling this series, not 1 Corinthians, but following Jesus together. This is what it means. And as you saw a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 1, verse 10, I'll just remind you, we'll put it on the screen. Paul says to the church community, I appeal to you, 
brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. We teased it out a few weeks ago. No schisms, no schismata, no divisions, no factions, no subgroups, but that you would be perfectly united. You, you, could, you could translate it this way, that you would speak the same thing. Not that you all agree on every minute detail, no. But it's important that because we all belong to Jesus, all of us here in this room and everyone who belongs to Jesus in the city that we love, it's vital that we work hard to stay united. And then Paul gives three things that the, the human culture that, that they were baked in, living in, thought were foolish, that actually God was using as wisdom. And we're looking at the second of three. Last week, uh, Stephen helped us to talk about the foolishness, quote unquote. Again, when, when Paul says the foolishness of the cross, he's not saying that the cross doesn't make sense. He's saying that the cross isn't wise in human wisdom. It's not the way we would have done it. But God took something that seems to be foolish in our eyes and he uses it to confound the wise. And think about it. The cross, we're used to people tattooing or, or wearing crosses. But in, in their day, it was the most brutal form of torture. It was meant to embarrass you and shame you until you slowly died naked in front of people mocking you. I mean, it's one thing to take someone out, but the cross was their public shaming tool. And yet God uses that form of death. Jesus could have died in any way, but God uses the torture tool of the world as the very means because Jesus submitted himself to shame. The shame of what? Of Rome? No, the shame of our sin. The shame of our offense to God. The shame of our own selfish living. The shame of our own foolishness of thinking that we can do better than God when it comes to life. God took our shame and Jesus embodies our shame and he pays our penalty in full. And, and, and everyone, Jewish leaders and non-Jewish leaders, all thought that the most foolish thing was to die by the nature of the cross. And yet in it, Jesus stands in our place and he rises again and he defeats death through the cross. And now it's the wisdom of God. Now anyone anywhere can approach God and be set free to live the life that God intended. Anyone, anywhere, because once for all, Jesus, the righteous, dies for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Now, that is not human wisdom. Human wisdom says the strong survive and the weak lose. And that's just not the way of the kingdom. Now, now he's talking about the foolishness of the world and the wisdom of God, pulling on the idea of unity. Don't miss the big picture. He says to the church, speak the same thing. Follow the same Jesus. Live in the same way. Stay united. Why? Because we're united in Jesus through his cross. Paul didn't die on the cross. Apollos didn't die on the cross. Cephas may have been crucified, but he didn't do it to pay for our sin in full. No human leader has done what Jesus has done. So why would we 
submit ourselves to these leaders as the most influential. And really, we're all, no matter what local church you attend, you don't follow Jose, you don't follow Justin, you don't follow any human leader. We're all, we're all related to Jesus. So because Jesus is supreme, we ought to put human leadership in its proper place. We honor our leaders, but we worship Jesus. We respect our leaders, but we together worship Jesus. Okay, Jesus unites us, and the wisdom of God is through the cross. Now, the second one is going to speak a similar, but a slightly different connected wisdom truth. Let's just read uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, and see the second comparison that Paul gives us. It says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. And here's the why. So that no one may boast before him. And it's because him that you're in Christ Jesus, who's become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And then he gives the reason. Therefore, in light of this, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Okay, we want to stay united as a people. The cross seems foolish to the world, but to us who know Jesus Christ, we're all coming under the leadership of Jesus, and we're all going the way of the cross. We're all, as Jesus said, carrying our cross daily, staying united with Christ daily so that we can honor God with our lives. That unites us. But there's two things we're going to see this morning that ought to be further appeals towards being a united people. Number one, remember who you were before Jesus. Why should we stay united? Just remember who you were. Remember who your neighbor was. Remember who I was before Jesus. What was the church like in, in Corinth? Well, we've looked at it. It was a mixed bag. He says, brothers and sisters, think of who you were. Now he's speaking to 60 to 75 people that he probably knows the majority of them in a city of half million or so uh, free people, plus maybe another quarter million slaves. Let's just say 750,000 people. And you have, say, 75 that make up the church. He's like, hey, you together are the greatest force for good in Corinth. You. And then he, he's using rhetoric. He's using like speech that ought to muster some emotion. He says, think of who you were. You were the nobodies. How's that for a pep talk? You came to church and realized, hey, hey, look, 26 of us, you're like the lowest of the low. Hey, as a matter of fact, if God were going to choose anything in this world, you know what he chose? The bottom. You. And he's like having to remind them of who they actually were. A church of 75 in a city or a metro area of 750,000 and you're the greatest force for good? Think of who you were. And this is true of who they were. They were a mixed bag. As a matter of fact, we only know a few people that had any potential for clout. If you read the letter, Crispus, Gaius, Erastus, Stephanus, maybe these are the only, in 75, I'm going to make a guess, Five, ten max had any influence anywhere 
in their culture. We know that the church in Corinth, when it started, was not upper class. Most people were either working people or actually slaves with little rights. The church collective had no brand, had no website, had no influence, had no building. They met in homes. And in Corinth, there are temples to the gods. So if you want to have an impressive God, you have an impressive place. Where does the church meet? In your living room, unimpressive. Where are all the people flocking to worship? Well, a few people are stumbling in for a family meal and communion and opening up the sacred scrolls. This, is, this was not impressive. If you want to win the world, this is not the way that you win the world. Not with that size, not with these people. And, and unfortunately, 2,000 years later, we feel like we somehow have a greater wisdom on how to influence the world. You ever, you ever stumble upon yourself, like say, whether it's an influential musician or actor or, or politician or whatever, and say like, man, if they could just come to Christ, if, if someone can reach them, then they would, they would really make a difference. I know I've done it. Like if they've got a platform, they have, you know, 50 million followers on whatever media channel. And if they came to Christ and shared their testimony, that's what the kingdom needs. Now, that's kind of cool. If anyone comes to Christ, I think it's amazing. But does the kingdom of Jesus need influential people to move forward in its mission? Do we need superstars? Do we need celebrity leaders to make a monumental difference for good in our city? And the answer from the beginning is absolutely not. Look at the dream team in Corinth. You got its leader, its planter, Paul, who is a Jewish teacher, intelligent for sure, educated for sure. He happens to be a Roman citizen. He has a little bit of that influence, except he's killing Christians. And the guy that's killing Christians is the one that's now one of its leaders. We got a big problem. The, 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 the leader is the one who was murdering. And he's misunderstood by Jews and non-Jews. And, and he's not an influential speaker. He talks about it. Some follow Apollos because he's an eloquent orator. And, and Paul seems to be a simple, brilliant mind, but a simple communicator. He's unimpressive. And by the way, in their culture and in ours, the people with influence, success, and truth are the people who are on the rise socially. More money, more, more power, more prestige, more, you know, the Jeff Bezos, everyone's making a big stink. He moved to Miami. He owns half the world. You know, like he left Seattle. Wow, this great icon of great success. We look to people who have more. And Paul's broke. Paul needs the other churches to help him, like, continue his mission. Like, please, I'm hungry. Send food fast. So a guy with no money is following the leader? A guy with little skill? This is not, think of the, think of the 12 apostles. Okay, so you have Paul who, who visited, who met Jesus on the road to Damascus after the resurrection of Jesus. But think of the 12 apostles. Uh, the superstar team are some fishermen who are not like the lowest of the low, but they're every ordinary working people. And then you have tax collector in the group, Matthew, who's hated. And then, and then you have a religious zealot, Simon the Zealot, who's a political activist. You have a, a, a collaborator with Rome. 
on the same team and some fishermen to round it out. How's that for the dream team? This is like, Jesus chose people who, who were not the cream of the crop in their culture to be his official representatives. And so what, what ought to unite us as a people? It's remembering the foolishness of the cross. God could take the worst horrific tool and make it the very agent by which we're all saved. And, and God takes something called the church, which seems to some as foolish, especially in today's culture, but he's using it as the very wisdom of God. God wants his people to be the greatest source of good in every city. Now you think, well, the foolishness of Paul, foolishness of the 12, um, and, and then Jesus, he seems, he's the son of God, and don't take this the wrong way, but he seems kind of foolish too. Born from nowhere, 30 years living in obscurity, suddenly he rises on the scene. He's not seen as an official teacher. He's not, he's not a priest in the official way. He's not a synagogue ruler, and he's definitely not a temple ruler. In their structures, Jesus makes no sense. He's a bit of a renegade, yet he's the son of God. God, as we move our way towards Christmas, is going to use a simple child, Jesus, born in the manger. Oh, by the way, mom and dad, Joseph and Mary, pretty impressive, huh? Nobody's. Out of nowhere. See, the pattern in the Bible has always been God takes those with nothing or seemingly nothing and his presence comes and everything changes. And friends, this is, by the way, good news for you and good news for me. Uh, one little helpful uh, quote from the commentator Craig Blomberg on this text. When we think about this contrast of influence, quote, of course, it's possible to be rich and Christian, but frequently at the times of the church has been least compromised with culture and politics. The majority of believers have not come from the upper classes of the world. For it's precisely the well-to-do who are often likely not to sense any need for God because they believe they can buy or manipulate their way into meeting all of their needs. End quote, ouch. It's miraculous that any of us are following Jesus. By the way, we are the rich. Whether you feel like you're broke and loaded with debt or you have some money in the bank, when you look at the global scene today, every single one of us by global standards are rich. And it's miraculous that you and I are following Jesus because the trend from the beginning is those with resources tend to lean in trusting their resources above God. Would you agree? As a matter of fact, the times that you and I cry out to God is when our stuff gets touched. We're most deeply connected to Jesus when our health is gone. We're most deeply connected to Jesus when our resources slip. We're most deeply connected to Jesus when our influence or our power or our whatever is shaken. Then we turn to Jesus. But let me just tell you, having been to many countries of the world, you don't have to talk to the poor about a need for God. And some of us look down, and the educated look down on the nose and say, like, thank God I'm not like you, because you need a God. I'm doing fine all by myself. That's not a modern American or Western thought. That is just a human tendency. 
forgetting. We didn't give birth to ourselves. We don't keep any of our cells in motion. We didn't help the money we came into. And frankly, our brain is limited. It's been God, by God's grace that we have any ability to do anything at any time. And God has been so generous to us. But unfortunately, the human story is the story of self-dependence rather than God-dependence. But it's the rich, according to the Hebrew prophets, uh, Jesus, the New Testament writers in 2,000 years of church history, that are usually the ones who struggle with trusting God over the resources that we possess. So this is an ongoing issue. And by the way, this brings us back to this call to unity. If you are a follower of Jesus, it is God's grace that opened the door for you to see Jesus for who he is. It's by God's grace and through your trust in what Jesus did for you and for me that we entered into the kingdom of God. We didn't come with loads saying, Jesus, look what I have to offer you. We came bankrupt. Now that doesn't mean there's no good in you. Of course there's good. God's imprint and DNA is on every human being. But when it comes to honoring God with our lives, how many of you are working about like 99 to 100% goodness? No, we're all in need of a savior. And so we ought to stay united. And by the way, we're all in need of God for all things. And so he calls on the church to remember, remember who you were before Jesus. Now Paul's going to go on and give a second thought, and we'll get to that. Verse 30. It is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who's become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we're, we're first invited to remember who we were before Jesus. Second thing, remember who we are now because of Jesus. So Paul reminds them, and every one of us who follows Jesus, Jesus is our righteousness, and Jesus is our holiness, and Jesus is our redemption. And so he, he, he gives these reminders again and again and again. It's going to come up all throughout the letter. We are now, because of our faith in what God has done for us in Jesus and his death and resurrection, we're now united with Christ, all of us. The cross has opened the door for us to all experience eternal life. And we're united in him. And the analogies all throughout the Bible point to the same thing. We're all bricks or stones in the temple. We're all part of the structure where the worship of God and God's presence dwells. The most common metaphor is body. Jesus is now the head. And we're all members united. We're all connected. We're all one body. And so we're important because we're connected to God, but we remember that the structure doesn't create the presence of God. God inhabits the structure. And in the same way, Jesus is the head. We're part of the body, but we don't come with some great things to offer. But yet at the same time, we are united. So I'm not always living righteously, but I'm united to Christ and he's my righteousness. And I'm not always living out holiness. Are you? No, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm working towards it. I'm growing in it. I'm, I'm reading what's true in the Bible. I'm trying to live in light of what's true. I'm, I'm learning. I'm discerning. I'm following the leading of the Holy Spirit. I'm growing in my personal holiness, but I'm not there yet. Yet, I'm united to Christ who's always holy. So yeah, I'm a work in progress, 
but I'm also a child of God. And yeah, I'm not there yet, but in God's eyes, I'm fully his. And this is a mystery. And I'm going to be with him forever. And so are you. So, so Jesus is our redemption. This, this is all good news. And because all this is true, because the cross is the way that we all enter into the family of God, why are we pulling each other down? Why are we breaking off into groups? Why are we hurting one another? It makes no sense. Unity makes sense in light of the cross of Christ. And and, and in light of we're being united into one church family. Now, structurally, they met in various homes in Corinth. It wasn't just one house expression. But they collectively got together. Maybe not every week. We don't know the fine details. But they would gather together and they would serve one another. And as the church grew across the Roman Empire and as the church grew in numbers over the centuries, it became multiple congregations within cities and it became networks of churches and it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. But don't let the different names mess with the reality. Yes, there's table community that we love and want to serve. Yes, there's 26 West, and yes, there's Calvary Chapel Hillsborough, and yes, there's Resound, and yes, there's B4, and yes, there's Cedar Mill. There are all of these names, but let's remember, we're a part of the big thing that God is doing. And God's got a family all over the city, and all over the state, and all over this country, and all over the world, and this is, this is the reminder, remember who we are because of Jesus. And so Paul says, don't just trust me. He quotes from Jeremiah 9. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In light of what God has already said, we ought to stay united. Let me just read the whole context. He says, this is what the Lord says, Jeremiah writes. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. Let the one who boasts, boasts about this, that they have the understanding to know me. That I am Yahweh who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declared Yahweh. God's people before Jesus needed to be reminded, never should we boast in what we've attained. Let our boast be in this, that we're united to the God who loves us, Yahweh. And it's, it's Yahweh that exercises kindness. It's Yahweh alone that exercises justice and righteousness on the earth. And so our boasting ought to be that we've been included in what God is doing on the earth. A little side helpful note, though. Paul does something really subtle here that would have offended the non-Jesus-following Jew. Paul often takes quotes from the Bible that were referent to Yahweh, the one creator God. And in light of Jesus, he puts Jesus right in there. Jesus is our righteousness, not Yahweh. Jesus is our holiness. Jesus is our redemption. Because when you see the big thing that God had been doing from the beginning, all, all that God was doing from uh, Adam and Eve and through Abraham and all the way up to the time of Jesus was pointing to fulfillment. So Jesus alone, the Savior, is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. All scripture is pointing to Jesus. And so in the New Testament, all scripture is pointing back to the work of Jesus. Jesus is the center of the story. And that's really subtle, but it's important. When you look at the Bible, things that are attributed to Yahweh now are attributed to Jesus. That was a freebie. Bible nerds, congratulations. You got a tidbit. 
All right, back to the main point though. He says, don't boast, or if you're gonna boast, boast in the Lord. You could interpret this, let the one who takes confidence, it's not about bragging. Let, it's not about saying, let the one who's gonna brag, brag in how great Jesus has made them. No, 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 you missed it. Let the one who has any bit of confidence have confidence in the Lord. And hopefully you can see why Paul's pulling on these various factions that had started to build within the church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. It's like the cross unites us. And the church, the people of God in all places, everywhere, ought to be a uniting power. No one was saved in Corinth because of their goodness or their wealth or their family background. The wisdom of Corinth said, important people have a great family name, have material wealth, and have political clout. And almost no one in the church ticked all of those boxes. And Paul says to them and to us, those boxes are this human standard. But God chose to come and meet us where we're at. And so those people are not the greatest force for good in the world. It's the people of God. Now, the good news is, in light of this reality, God can use anyone, anywhere, to do anything. And that ought to encourage you, my friend. You may not have all the material resources that you would like. God is not limited by the resources that you're holding on to. He has limited, limitless resources. And you say, well, I'm not that influential in terms of, I got like 17 followers. I'm trying to grow my Insta presence. It's not working. And if if that's where your world is, is, it's kind of flighty, but if that's where you, you know, that's where you're looking for validation, nobody really knows you. And and 10 years from now, those tools will be gone and you'll have to restart building your brand again, right? I said 10 years, more like 10 months. Those things that the world holds on to as valuable, what we need to do as the people of God is evaluate them. Now, having resources is a great thing if these resources that come from God belong to God and are used for God-given purposes. And influence in our culture really matters. Would it be great if people who hold political clout or just clout in our community are loving the way of Jesus and following the way of Jesus? Yes, right? I am all for Jesus' people leading in all walks of life. But do we need that to happen in order for Jesus to move? No. God delights in using nobodies. Okay, so that's, that's a little bit of the text. Now I want to take the last couple of minutes and tease out at least two implications. One's a little bit easier, and the other one's a little more challenging. So just work with me here. Two dimensions, I think we can take this ancient text and apply it to the Church of God at 26 West or in Hillsboro. We're living in a wild time in American history because right now, and I'm 51, so I've seen the trend. Those of you who are older have really seen the trend. Those of you who are younger may not have picked up on the trend. But when you look at the church and its influence in America today where we live, it seems to be waning or on a downward cycle. Would you agree? Like, it just seems to be going that way. You used to pray in public and people applauded it and said, oh, who's going to pray before the game or this or that? Now it's like, lawsuit, lawsuit, lawsuit. And, 
And the Bible used to be upheld and nobody followed it, but we believed it was good. And now every attempt is being named, uh, every attempt is being made to discredit the Bible or its importance. And the church, always imperfect, was seen as force for good and now people are suspicious at best. And hear me clearly, the wisdom of God is greater than our foolishness. The wisdom of God. So don't read the headlines or see the cultural change and miss what God is doing. God does not need the culture's value of his son or the Bible or the visit of the church. God doesn't need those things to be in his favor for him to move. And he could do anything at any time. And he often works in the strangest times and the most difficult times to do the most good in his people. Because in the end, who gets the credit? It's God. Where is the church going fastest right now in the world? It may not be in America, but it happens to be in China and Iran. Right now, in two places that are politically as far distant and cold and hard to do anything, let alone follow Jesus. And yet that's where the church is growing numerically the fastest. You see, what's foolish in the earth's sight or man's sight happens to be the wisdom of God. Now let's just think about us as a post-pandemic church. Uh, some people will say like, well, okay, I learned a lot during the last two to three years and we're living in a tumultuous time where people stayed away for good reason stayed away for a season from the gathering of God's people together, and we learned all sorts of things, and some have come to all sorts of conclusions. So it's obvious that in most places of worship, there are fewer people attending the gathering than there were prior in most places. And I know this for a fact. People are attending gatherings of God's people with uh, less frequency than before. So if someone came every week, it's maybe every other week if someone came uh, twice a month, maybe it's once a month. If someone came Christmas and Easter, it's every other year Easter. Do you do the math? I don't know how this works. But it's, it's decreased, and that can become discouraging. Uh, and when you look at the signs all around our culture, the church seems to be an underdog at best. Again, that's one way of reading it. But I just want to give you some context. The church is growing all over the world. And the church is growing in Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa and many parts of Asia faster and faster in, in eerily similar numbers as to previous generations in the church in America. Here is the point. God is on the move. And just because you don't see it in your neighborhood doesn't mean God isn't on the move. And just because we don't see it in our neighborhoods now doesn't mean that his next move isn't right around the corner. You see, it's why we pray. It's why we press in. Because we could look at the wisdom of the world that says you need more of this, more of that, and more of the other in order to see God move. And we say, no, we simply need Jesus. And so, yeah, Jesus does not need a bunch of wealthy, influential, or well-connected people to spread his message of rescue and love. Now, if he has some of those, that's great, but I call that gravy. That ain't the meal. And so God can do anything at any time. Okay, that's the easier one for us to kind of discern. In our cultural moment, don't get discouraged. Let's look at the second 
uh, dimension. It's harder. What do we do about the mess we often see in the church? I think we've had so much time to think over these last few years and evaluate, and we were all connected online, but then we really, really, really got connected online, and the more you're connected online, the more that you see. And so for many, it's, it's almost become like heroic to say today, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Or I love Jesus, but I, I will not be a part of the church. And that's, that's the difficult one, isn't it? And I know like just saying that brings up all sorts of emotions because I know some of you are here and you're, you're just not sure. Like I'm, I'm trying Jose to believe in the church. I'm, I know it's somehow the wisdom of God. I, I know it's valuable, but, but let me tell you the story. And then you hear the details and you're like, wow. Yeah, man, I've got trouble with the church. Church Hurt is real. It's very real. Now, if you're new to exploring Jesus, what you need to know, God in his wisdom gave a letter to this early church because they were following the way of Jesus with all sorts of imperfections, right? By the way, this letter is a corrective. And this ancient letter is gonna help us as we need constant correctives what are we going to do with church hurt? Well, we have to say things that are true. People hurt people. Even those who say they follow the way of Jesus. And it's in two categories, at least. It's intentionally and unintentionally. And so, I mean, look, you can't go a week without a new headline, can you? About a leader or a church or a movement or a city or whatever that was hiding things that were evil and wrong. And then you see like decades later, it comes out and, and you're like, God, if you're real, what's wrong with your people? And that's like intentional sabotage by people who follow the way of Jesus or claim to. And that's another mystery in it. Because when we look at church and intentional church hurt, Some are following the way of Jesus and doing things that are evil. Some are not even following the way of Jesus in their wolves and sheep's clothing. And that's even doubly hard because we don't know the heart. And we know it's intentional, which really makes the way of Jesus sound frustrating and not that good. So that's that's intentional, and that hurts. And I've seen it. Um... Growing up as a kid, I was just a teen, and a key leader in, in the church that we were a part of, and the church was everything to me, like absolutely everything. And this key leader did some things that my dad, who was an elder, saw and called into account, because he saw it, and he knew it was wrong, and he did what was right and shared that, and was shut out by this leader to the point where to not cause a schism our family left the church and I lost everything. All my friends, everything. Like it was now that leader didn't intentionally hurt me. A lot of church hurt is unintentional church hurt. 
where it's like, they dropped a bomb and the shrapnel hit me, you know? And so that's, that's real. And what do we do? You knew the crying moment was going to come. You just didn't know it was going to come now. Um, what, do we, what do we do about that? Well, we own that um, Jesus following leaders sin. And sometimes it's intentional and we need to repent, right? Sometimes it's unintentional. We still need to repent because we, we hurt one another. Now, now, crazy thing, I'm on the other side. Now I'm one of those guys and I know that I've hurt people and I hope that it's not been intentional, but God knows my heart, you know? And, and so I've hurt people and whether it's intentional or unintentional, it's still hurtful, right? And so what do I need to do? I need to repent. And, and when we come into the light and realize that a lot of the division the enemy wants to cause is through the hurt, and we realize, oh gosh, I, I don't want to hide the hurt. I don't want to ignore the hurt, but I want to bring hurt back to the cross of Jesus who understands who understands our pain, who paid for it all, who loves us deeply and ask Jesus to heal the hurt. And when I remember, and here's the tricky part, still God calls us to be a part of his church. And this is where hurt can mask us from the source of God's blessing. When we're so hurt, we can push so far from the church that the enemy will pick us off because we're left alone, forgetting that we've been included in the body, a body that sometimes hurts one another. And by the way, the church that we, the, the hurt that we display towards one another, in no way does it make low the beauty of the good news of Jesus. It only proves how gracious God is because he still loves us, the ones who have been hurt and the ones who do the hurting, and he came to rescue us all. So coming full circle, the church should be the most united force for good in our world. A united local church working through its own pains could be the most welcoming, peaceful voice for people who come in with all sorts of chaos and brokenness. A united group of churches in a city will spread the love of Jesus with clarity and conviction and compassion, which leads to some key questions I want us to really lean into, and it'll impact the way we respond. And I want you to think about this deeply. Where do I need to turn? Where do I need to return? The biblical word is repent. Let's not start with everyone else. Others need to turn, return, repent for sure. But I can't own that. I can't force that. But I can look at my own soul and say, God, where do I need to come back to your love. And I want to invite us to do that tangibly this morning. We're all going through stuff. And we're going to open things up for prayer 
this morning where we're going to respond to God, not to people. We're going to respond to God and say, God, here I am, and I'm turning to you. I'm returning to you. I'm repenting of what I know I've either done or allowed to fester. Some of us just been holding on too long. We want to give it to God. So I'm going to invite all of you to respond this morning. I don't know if there's one person here that could honestly say, I, I have nothing to turn from. I'm okay. I think we all can and should. So we want to do that this morning. And then the second question is connected to it. Where's God inviting me to step in? Maybe God's inviting you into something, into a deeper participation of church, into a reconciling conversation, whatever it is that God is inviting you to, to, to step into. Let's say yes to that uh, as part of our response. And in that, the foolishness of God, which is really wisdom, the cross of Christ and God's people call the church. As we receive healing from him, we can better display the love of God to other people around us, which is the point anyway. And so will we now respond? Uh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I, we are getting more visual and visceral, more active in how we respond as a church. And we invite each other to pray and to turn, to come. And uh, in just a second, uh, as the band comes, we're just going to open up space here uh, to the, your left and to your right, where we, we just are open with God. And look, I'm not saying like, hey, today if you committed that, 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 then you respond. If you know in your soul that God is working, then I'm inviting you to take a tangible step of faith and step out of your seats and just allow the love of God to flood your soul. Someone from our prayer team will stop by and just pray God's blessing, but they're not going to have a conversation. They're not going to ask a question. They just want to be a brother, a sister, pray for one another that you may be healed, the Bible says, and so we believe that. But, but do, do that important work with God, and then at the right time, we'll sing some songs, we'll take communion. But this is, this is the moment to get real. I guarantee you, I'll be the first person on the floor. All right, stand if you would. And those who feel stirred, simply respond to the love of God. Slip out of your seat. Get messy. Kneel, stand, cry, do whatever. Just don't harden your heart. And in a moment, we'll worship.